Times Like Now is an interview program. I like to speak with interesting people who are doing cool stuff. My name is Trevor Collins, and my guest today is Eric Eulis. Eric is a researcher of the D.B. Cooper story, the only unsolved plane jacking in U.S. history. Eric and his team have recently been digging along the banks of the Columbia River in search of clues to the D.B. Cooper case. On this episode of Times Like Now. Hello, Eric Eulis. Thank you so much for joining me on the program tonight. My pleasure. So, Eric, um, as a D.B. Cooper researcher, do you call yourself that? Well, you know, I've I've been affixed with a handful of labels. Uh, the the most recent one is crime historian. So I I guess it all means the same thing when all said and done. So uh, so having said all that, I, I do not have a uh, a specific title or anything of that nature that I prefer. Sure, you don't have it on a business card yet, but that's right. Uh, That'd be one heck of a business card. <laughs> my first question is. How long have you been investigating or researching this case? Well, I've been investigating pretty seriously about 13 years. I've, I've been aware of the case since the late 70s, uh, but it's been about the last 13 years or so that I've taken a uh, more of a serious investigation. And it started out as sort of a guilty pleasure. You know, I didn't intend it on it being much, but it's just one of those things that over time, just sort of morphed into something much bigger nowadays than it was originally. Sure, sure. It, it can become a, a, a fascination and then becomes, well, you're now on television talking about it, so it's turning, turning into more than, than that, obviously. Um, <laughs> yeah. real, real quickly, so you, you spent the weekend, last weekend, at the Tina Bar. Is that pronounced right? Tina or Tina Bar? Tina Bar, as Tina Bar is how it's pronounced. Right. That that is not a uh, a brew pub or a drinking establishment. That's on the banks of the Columbia River, on the north side, on the Vancouver side, where in 1980, a young boy Brian Ingram found almost six thousand dollars. Correct. That's correct. Uh, but I'll let me clarify a couple of points. The Columbia River at that point actually runs north south actually it runs uh due north basically so uh the tina bar is on the columbia river it is on the washington state side so it's on the east side of the river in that spot and brian ingram did find three straps or three packets however you want to phrase it of rotten 20 dollar bills that totaled six thousand dollars okay my first question because well, I'm originally from that area, from that Vancouver, Clark County area. So clearly, and obviously this was, you know, a, a part of my growing up, this this story. And we are now near, very near the 50-year anniversary of this date when, when the man named D.B. Cooper jumped from that airplane. So my first question for you is, how was the money packaged when it was given to D.B. Cooper? What D.B. Cooper requested uh, during the skyjacking was $200,000 in a nap sack. And that's, those are his words, $200,000 uh, in a nap sack. He did not request any specific denomination or anything of that nature. 
What the authorities did is they collected the $200,000, which happened to be an all $20 bill. So you have $10,000, $20 bills. And the bills were pre-recorded, so we know exactly what serial numbers uh, were affixed to each one of these 10,000 bills. Uh, and it was delivered in a white canvas open top bank bag. Uh, and it's open top, uh, kind of like a grocery bag, uh, doesn't have a zipper, doesn't have a snap, doesn't even have a handle on it, just a white canvas flat bank bag. Uh, I believe that the size of the bag, uh, it's called a size H bag, which is 14 by 28 inches when it's laid flat. Uh, and the money was just all piled in there. So when he received the money, uh, he was uh, angry. He was a little upset about that and complained about it to the flight attendant because obviously looking at that money, he realized he's going to have to do something. Otherwise, if he jumped out of the airplane with the bag, as it were, uh, the money would just fly out all over the place. Uh, and it wasn't filled to the top. I believe it was filmed, filled probably within about six inches of the top. But still, uh, when you factor in, you know, you need to kind of cinch up that material at the top of the bag and tie it shut somehow. There just simply wasn't enough space there to tie off that bag properly, utilizing shroud lines that he cut from one of the other parachutes that were delivered to him. So I believe what he did is he removed some of the packets, some of those excess packets of uh, 20s to make a little bit additional room there in that ransom bag. Uh, he cinched the bag tight, uh, tied it to his person and everything. And those excess packets of 20s uh, he housed uh, somewhere else before he jumped. So when you say packets, were these just like bound with paper straps or were they bound in plastic of any sort or? They did not have paper straps or plastic. They merely had rubber bands on them. Rubber so bands. Yeah, each, each one of these straps uh, consisted of $120 bills. So each strap, and this is a consistent size strap. And, and again, I use the term strap or packet interchangeably the same thing. Each strap, each packet of uh, $20 bills is equals $2,000. So, and they're just simply bound by a rubber band. The authorities purposely made certain that the money when it was delivered to Cooper did not have any sort of markings on it that denoted a specific bank or anything of that nature. The money came from Seafirst Bank uh, in downtown Seattle, but there was nothing uh, on the bag or on the money itself to indicate that it actually came from Seafirst Bank. And that was uh, deliberate on the part of law enforcement. Sure, sure. Have you gotten your research from other researchers, from books and from both? Um, the overwhelming majority of my research has actually come directly from the FBI files. In 2016, through a Freedom of Information Act request, the FBI files were opened up. And what that started was uh, a series of files being released. And essentially about every six weeks, there are about four or 500 pages worth of redacted FBI files that are released going back from the very beginning. Um, and right now we've got about 25,000 pages which have been redacted. Most of them are of little value. Uh, but there are a few things that are very valuable in there. So most of the information I've I've learned with respect to the cases in that respect. Uh, I've also done an awful lot of interviews with 
uh, firsthand people. Uh, the, for example, the air traffic controller who handled the flight on the way down. I've interviewed the pilot who flew the jet on the way down. Um, I've interviewed FBI agents who were involved with the case. Um, you know, additionally, uh, there has been you know a fair amount of scientific analysis and so, analysis and so forth that was done in later years with respect to the tie. DB Cooper left a, a tie on the jet. Uh, which had some materials and things of that nature w- that were discovered. So uh, that's been the, you know, that's been a lion's share of my research. And then, frankly, just contemplating and thinking through a lot of things. I've I've tried very hard to put myself in DB Cooper's shoes and try to understand what would I do if I were DB Cooper, what would I do in this situation? Uh, but to be sure, yeah, there are a few things here and there that you pick up from other people that you say, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, that, that adds up. That makes sense. But uh, by and large, um, all of my work is original, and, and frankly, the results are also very original. Sure, and, and that is great to hear. Thank you for that, that bit of background. So, as you mentioned, uh, logical thinking for D.B. Cooper I also, growing up in Clark County there, my friends and I would, would talk about this and think about it too. We were pretty sure that he was probably living on an island with Bigfoot somewhere and <laughs> in the, you know, maybe in the Clark County mountains somewhere in the gorge. But realistically though, this money has never been found. Other than the money that was found in the, in the <laughs> sand along the river, none of this money ever showed up in circulation anywhere. That's correct, which is a mystery in and of itself, uh, because I do believe that the money was buried on the beach at Tina Bar. I do believe that the money was retrieved from Tina Bar about seven months later, uh, the three packets behind notwithstanding. Uh, it does appear money was not spent. It's not impossible that it, that it, you know, couldn't, couldn't have, could have been spent. Uh, it is possible that the guy could have for example, brought it to Asia or Europe and just little by little, you know, spent the money and it would have been darn near impossible to detect. But still, given the sheer magnitude of bills, 10,000 bills uh, and people looking for them and in later years, you know, pretty sophisticated, you know, software and so forth where you could just kind of run a bill through a, a system and actually it could tell you if it was the Cooper bill or not. Uh, I, I would have thought that at least one of the bills would have showed up, uh, but nothing has shown up. So I, I'm of the opinion that uh, none of the ransom ended up being spent. Right. And even if he had landed in the river and maybe perished from the fall, the money would have wound up on the beach somewhere. I mean, it would have wound up maybe in the, in the Columbia or along the beach somewhere between there and the and the Oregon coast, Oregon Washington coast. And that never happened either. You would yeah, you would think that if he uh, no pulled and just ended up dead in the river somehow that something would have shown up somewhere at some time. And there has been absolutely nothing. And it's also critically important to understand where he was found those three straps of 20s that were found in 1980, in other words, eight years after the skyjacking, they were found at a point on the beach that was about 40 or 50 feet from the river's edge and at an elevation of about seven or eight feet above the normal level of the Columbia River. So at an, at, at a, an elevation 
that the river rarely reached. In fact, it only reached that spot two times between the night of the skyjacking and between uh, between that and when the money was found in February of 1980. So if you're going to be, if someone's going to advocate that the money somehow came from the, the river, you know, just washed up and lapped up on shore, uh, you know, by definition, it would absolutely have to have taken place during one of those two high water events, one which is June of 72 and one which was June of 74. Uh, there are many other problems with that, however, and uh, scientific things that, that uh, point away from that. So I think uh, I'm, I'm a fan of Occam's razor, man. The simplest explanation is the closest to the truth. And I think what we have here is a situation uh, where it's pretty clear, especially considering we have three independent separate packets that were all neatly you know, stacked upon each other underneath the sand. That seems to be a pretty clear indication that those things were buried uh, by D.B. Cooper himself. Speaking of the bills themselves, I read some science and saw some some recent report about a scientist named Tom Kay, who had yes. done some research, uh, uh, microscopic research, finding that the algae that was on those bills was a spring algae and not a winter algae. Now he jumped, D.B. Cooper jumped around Thanksgiving in 1971. Um, actually, a couple of things to note here. Uh, it wasn't an algae. They're called diatoms, and the di diatoms are uh, a very fragile, glass-like. Uh, they almost look like a Christmas ornament, but exceptionally small, uh, like the cell size of a blood cell, and very fragile. And these, these diatoms bloom throughout the year, and as you noted, they're seasonal. So what we noticed on the bills, or what Tom noticed on the bills, and I know Tom very well. He lives in Arizona, as do I. Um, is that uh, the diatoms, um, while they were, some of them were broken on the bills, they weren't shattered, which is important. Also, as you noted, only spring diatoms were found on the bill. On, on the bill. So what this tells us is that the money was exposed to the Columbia River, but during the springtime and only the springtime. If the money had... If D.B. Cooper had no pull and ended up in the river and the money just sat at the bottom of the river and then at some point, either through a dredging process or a big wave kicking it up or something like that, threw, threw, threw it on the beach, well, you know, it stands to reason we would have seen diatoms from multiple seasons, not just spring. What I think that that indicates is not when the money was buried, but rather when the money was retrieved. Uh, and that's a critical, important, uh, critical thing to, to, to draw. So uh, simply put, I believe D.B. Cooper landed very near where the money was found, probably within half a mile or a mile of where the money was found. Uh, when he landed, all of this stuff, the parachutes, the, you know, attache case, the money, all this stuff strapped to his person was about 85 pounds worth of stuff. That's, that's quite a load. And, uh, you know, you can just imagine you know, walking through dirt fields or even along a paved road, you know, wet, cold, loafers, raincoat, lugging 85 pounds worth of crap. <laughs> you, know, you, you know, you're only, you're going to get about half a mile and you're, you're like, you're going to quickly realize that, you know what, I, I'm going to have to stash this stuff. Otherwise I'm going to end up having a heart attack out here. So um, I believe that he buried all of this stuff on the night he jumped. 
on the on the beach, which makes sense because it's just sand. It's been very easy to do. And then uh, obviously walked his way back to civilization, uh, which was Vancouver, eight miles down the road. Uh, but at some point realized that there was this historical flooding that was taking place on the Columbia River, which again, as I noted, was June of 1972. So about seven months after the skyjacking. And I think he realized uh, or was probably concerned to some degree that either the stuff would be exposed, uncovered uh, because of the floodwaters or perhaps even just outright swept out to sea. So uh, I'm of the opinion that he returned to the spot to retrieve uh, at least the money, if not the other items, at least the money, uh, presumably under cover of darkness. Uh, and at that point, the money spot itself, the burial spot, was probably already under one or two feet of water. So he waded out into the water a foot or, or two deep and, uh, you know, found the spot, you know, uh, managed to get his hand on the bag, the, the, the waterlogged bank bag, and kind of pry it up from its watery grave and also uh, retrieve some of the loose packets of 20s that he also placed in that hole. Uh, and just, it went unnoticed, the three of them were left behind and the rest is history. But that would explain how those three packets that were left behind uh, were exposed to the Columbia River during the month of June during, you know, and retrieved the diatoms and only the month of June and uh, and then obviously eight years later, the money was found and the rest is history, as I mentioned. Was there an, possibly an accomplice? He said, I'm going to be on the ground because he jumped out of the plane at, what was it, around 830. Maybe there was somebody waiting for him near there and maybe even somebody in a boat waiting for him on the Columbia River. Well, a couple of things. Sure. Um, a couple of things here. Uh, I think it. Uh, I do not believe he knew where he jumped. I think it would have been virtually impossible, and there are a number of reasons why. Um, he jumped at uh, about 8.12 p.m. The jet was flying about 10,000 feet, so it was literally flying in the clouds. So he couldn't see the ground. He could probably see the glow of Vancouver or, you know, Woodland or whatever in the area, Ridgefield. Uh, Portland, that type of thing, but uh, he couldn't be certain exactly where he was, in part because he told them to refuel in Reno, Nevada. He did not give them any kind of flight plan, so the jet could have easily taken off from SeaTac and flown over the Cascades to Yakima and headed south there. It could have flown due south as it did. It could have flown over the Pacific Ocean and flew along the coast, which the pilots actually considered for a period of time. So there are a number of ways that the jet could have gone. So the whole idea of an accomplice is just virtually impossible to, to entertain. So plus the parachute was not steerable. Um, no, I did not know that. Yeah, it was not steerable. It was a, is an, uh, I don't want to call it old fashioned, but it was a, a 28 foot uh, round canopy, which was not steerable. Uh, what I think happened here, I think the evidence clearly points to that what D.B. Cooper's initial plan was, was to jump in the outskirts of Seattle. His plan, I believe, was to jump probably within five or six minutes of the plane taking off from Seattle, landing in the exurbs and getting about a three-hour head, head start on the authorities before they even realized he was gone, you know, until the plane landed in Reno. There were a couple of things that delayed him so he couldn't jump 
uh, in the outskirts of Seattle, one of which was the money that we just talked about, the fact that he had to come up with a solution to figure out a way to tie that off and everything. By the time he was ready, the plane was already, you know, 36 minutes down the road. And I think he looked for his next best opportunity to jump, which happened to be the glow of, uh, you know, Vancouver, Portland area. You know, I, you know, he, he it just stands to reason that he realized he, while he isn't well served to jump into the middle of some city, you know, land on Main Street or anything, uh, it's equally perilous to jump in the middle of blackness. <laughs> you don't know, you know, whether it's the woods or, or water, neither one of them is particularly good. So I think he realized that, you know, his best thing was to, as, as some lights were approaching or the glow of some sort of urban or suburban area was approaching, he figured this was the time to, to jump. And I don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, where that money was found happens to be you know, which, you know, still is really kind of the outskirts of the Portland, Vancouver area. Right, right. Okay. That uh, that clarifies a little bit in my mind I about what I thought, because I thought that maybe that was his intention all along, was to go out over the Columbia River. The other thing that I wanted to ask about, because I know you did some research into his tie. Now, there have been a couple people who are men who have claimed to be or have been D.B. Cooper on their deathbed or near their deathbed, but the, there was some DNA taken from that tie, correct? That's correct. There was The FBI did manage to procure a partial DNA profile uh, from the tie. I'm not exactly sure what part of the tie, but nonetheless, the FBI seems reasonably confident that they have you know, part of D.B. Cooper's DNA profile, along with other people as well. Obviously, the tie, this clip-on tie that was accidentally left behind, uh, you know, this was left behind in 1971, so there was no such thing as DNA testing or anything of that nature. So, uh, but yeah, to answer your question, yeah, there was a partial DNA profile that was lifted, uh, there are only a few people, only a few suspects that the FBI has actually tried to affect a comparison. Uh, one of them was a gentleman named Dwayne Weber. One of them was a gentleman named L.D. Cooper. And one of them was a gentleman named Sheridan Peterson. Uh, the FBI has publicly stated that L.D. Cooper and Dwayne Peterson did not match, that the DNA did not match. So they've, you know, for all intents and purposes, ruled them out as viable suspects. Uh, Sheridan Peterson, the other gentleman, they said nothing at all with respect to his uh, comparison. So he's always been a very compelling suspect in my mind, that is uh, Sheridan Peterson. Right, right. Um, this is amazing, an amazing story, and you are going to be returning to Terra Bar for more digging. Is that right? That's correct. The uh, What I'm looking for is the missing parachutes, there are two parachutes, and also the, the attache case, which again ostensibly carried the bomb. The spot that I'm looking at is within uh, 40 or 50 feet of the spot where the money itself was actually found in 1980. Uh, while I was doing research, conducting research on the area in 2018 into 2019, I happened to notice that there was one area of the beach that the FBI did not search. Uh, and it's an area of particular interest to me for a couple of reasons, not the least of which is there are a couple of prominent trees there that I believe D.B. Cooper would have used as landmarks. Because it stands to reason if 
D.B. Cooper is going to bury some money on the beach, money on the beach. He's got to have some sort of landmark so he knows where to collect it, you know, when he goes back some some point later. Uh, so this is an area that's of enormous interest. Uh, so, uh, you know, we, we got everything started. We put a couple of days worth of very hard labor into it because in the later years, about about 10 years ago, um, some gigantic boulders were placed along the uh, water line itself to prevent erosion. But on top of the beach itself in that area, there was a, a bunch of uh, rock and dirt kind of debris that was placed upon there about two feet thick, uh, which is now very hard for the purposes of, again, mitigating erosion. So as we're out there searching, the first task for us is to break through that top layer of rock and dirt, which is, again, about two feet thick and very hard uh, to expose the beach underneath. And once we've exposed the beach underneath, then we can uh, dig down about 18 inches or so and see what we can find there. The area is about 300 square feet, so it's not terrifically big. And I think we've got about another eight full days of uh, searching and digging and all that kind of stuff before we've got the that 300 square feet covered. Uh, and that will take place over the next six weeks or so. Obviously, as I noted at the beginning of this, is I, I don't live in the state, uh, so there are some logistical concerns and things of that nature that have to be have to have to be ironed out. But uh, but the search is underway. Uh, I feel very. Uh, Excited about the prospect of those parachutes being there or the, the attache case being there. Uh, it's kind of almost chilling to consider that, you know, the FBI searching at the time the money was found trying to find something else uh, may actually have been within 20 or 30 feet of this all along. They just didn't realize it. Uh, so mm. it's, it's an area of enormous interest. Uh, and um, it's just, to me, it's just obvious. He, you know, he buried the money there. And that's why I've said Let's just start with that. You know, if you just start with the money find spot, because we know for damn sure that he, you know, that's where the money was, and you start working your way out from there, then everything starts to uh, to fall into place. I mean, the FBI did make some mistakes. I mean, it wasn't like they were completely inept. I don't want to suggest that, but there were some mistakes that were made along the way, which 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 frustrated their attempts to to get to the truth and. Uh, one of was this thing called the Palmer Report, which led to the Washougal washdown theory um, and things of that nature. But like I said, in the years that have passed, uh, Tom Cave, myself uh, in particular, I think the two of us in particular, have done uh, a lot of heavy lifting in terms of really kind of, you know, dispelling the, some of the falsehoods and, and clarifying what actually what actually happened and what we actually have in terms of evidence and that kind of stuff. So. It tells a story. It tells a story if we're willing to listen to it. So, Right. The FBI closed this case in 2016, and you're still hot on the trail. I certainly wish you the best in this. Where could people find your contact? Or I know you've been doing some TV, and uh, where could people find more about the story and about your research? Yeah, I do have a website, which is ericulis.com. Just my name. It's E-R-I-C. U-L-I-S dot com, just EricUlis dot com. On that website there, there's uh, a lot of research uh, on there, a lot of things that I've conducted that addresses various aspects of the case and so forth. Uh, I also have a, a Facebook group. We have a, face, a D.B. Cooper Facebook group. It's called D.B. Cooper Mystery Group. 
Uh, we've got uh, over 1,400 members of the D.B. Cooper Facebook group. It's a new group. It's only been around for a couple of months. Uh, so, uh, you know, I welcome people that are that are interested in the case to uh, to join the Facebook group. Just search D.B. Cooper under Facebook groups and it'll come up. It's the it's the biggest one. So uh, D.B. Cooper Facebook group. Uh, yeah, it's called, it's called D.B. Cooper Mystery Group. But uh, those are two ways that people can uh, see some of my research, get a hold of me. My, my email address is on my website there if somebody wants to reach out to me uh, to put forward some ideas or thoughts or have some questions or what have you. Or, of course, they can always ask uh, uh, via the uh, Facebook group as well. Thank you so much, Eric Euless. I really do appreciate your time. Fascinating subject, and the mystery continues. Uh, check in with you again, maybe uh, after your next dig. I'm interested to, to know more. Thanks again. My pleasure. You bet. Past episodes of Times Like Now can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you to the letter J. Cody Robertson for original music. My name is Trevor Collins. I can be reached, Trevor, at Times Like Now. Thank you for tuning in, and I do look forward to speaking with you next time.